This is uh, Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and today I am joined by Dr. Robert Coleman, who is a professor of gynecologic oncology and also the Executive Director of Cancer Network Research at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, welcome, uh, Rob. Um, today we're going to be talking about the subject of the PARP inhibitors and the role of PARP inhibitors in the management of patients with uh, advanced ovarian cancer. So. Would you uh, share with us what are your thoughts with regards to how PARP inhibitors have uh, come to play in gynecologic oncology today? Yeah, great. Thanks, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the PARP inhibitors have come, uh, you know, in the kind of the big spectrum of things, in a, come to the clinic in a relatively short period of time. So, you know, the, the first kind of uh, papers that suggested that there may be this um, synthetic lethality, we like to call it, of using a PARP inhibitor in a, in a, in a particular condition. In this case, it was in BRCA uh, deficient cells, uh, showed this, this amazing kind of um, activity. And so it didn't take long to, for that to get into the clinic. And so in 2006, uh, these reports first came out in 2005, and in 2006, there was already clinical trials going. And so today, um, and we'll know soon, I think, um, on the last indication, but we already have three drugs that are approved in five different indications. And as I mentioned, it'll be a sixth one we expect um, very soon. So, so they've really come to play an important role in uh, the management of two, con two specific situations. And I'll just briefly describe them. The one being in the treatment of patients who have germline um, or somatic BRCA mutation, um, and, uh, and then also as a way of using it to um, uh, pr uh, provide a maintenance strategy after response to platinum. So it's been very exciting. And then for those of you who, uh, in the audience that may not be as familiar with, uh, with the PARP inhibitors and the mechanisms of how these work, would you tell us briefly, um, how do they actually work? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, we've, uh, uh, we've seen a lot of um, diagrams and cartoons that kind of outline how PARP inhibitors work. It's probably much more complicated than this, but I think one concept that most people do understand is this idea that PARP itself is a, a, uh, uh, an enzyme that's responsible for basic excision repair. Um, and so the thought is, is that if that's impaired by using a PARP inhibitor, that over time, uh, replicative stress would lead to double-strand breaks, which would rely on high-fidelity mechanisms for, for repair of the DNA. And so um, those are governed by several different genes, but I've, the two uh, that are very obvious to most people are the BRCA1 and 2 genes. And so the thought is that if the BRCA1 and 2 genes are not um, uh, present or not functional, then this double-strand break would go un unfixed and, un and it would lead to uh, like a mitotic catastrophe. And I think that many people understand that that's kind of a, a neat way that it works, but we've, I think the more recent data would suggest that the mechanism is much more complex. Um, it actually engages multiple different pathways of error-prone as opposed to error-free repair. Um, PARP also regulates several of those processes, and so when it's inhibited, um, there is this kind of preferential leverage of those error-prone pathways. Um, and there's also um, some very interesting findings about how the DNA replication fork is stabilized or not under the presence of these conditions. So it's, so there's, I don't think we really know exactly how they work, but I think that um, the concept of there being uh, DNA repair that's somehow impaired in this process um, le leads to this uh, overall activity in selected patients. 
And who do you see is the ideal patient for PARP inhibitors today when the patients come to your office today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that most of us recognize that uh, uh, in line with the mechanism I just mentioned, that patients who have deficiency in those genes, BRCA genes, whether it's ger- in, in the germline or if it's found as a, uh, an isolated event in the, from, in the tumor itself, what we call somatic mutation, that those patients seem to be the ones that gain the, the, probably the greatest benefit. Um, I think that uh, what's really of interest to us is that we feel that that this um, um, repair process, which we call homologous recombination, could be deficient in a number of different ways, even in patients who are wild type for the BRCA genes. And so the interest is is maybe we can expand that population. And the recent data that we've seen from uh, some of the work that we've done, both in the treatment setting and in the maintenance setting, would suggest that patients who also have homologous recombination deficiency uh, independent of BRCA status uh, may likely benefit. And uh, of course, um, in the trials that, have been, that were done in terms of, uh, of maintenance strategies, there were benefits that were seen across the general population. But I think it's safe to say that most of us understand that the majority of that benefit in the general population is really coming from that really um, significant effect that we see in the um, uh, HRD population, which would include the BRCA mutation patients. And when you talk to your patients with regards to the side effect profile of the PARP inhibitor, what are some of the things that you're discussing with them? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's something that people who have uh, who have given PARP inhibitors, prescribed them, uh, are starting to become well aware of. Uh, we know that nausea, fatigue, and vomiting, GI side effects, are really common with these drug this drug class. And what's what we've seen, and it's uh, you know, I guess it's yet to be kind of confirmed, but. The strategy for addressing that may be different than what we do with chemotherapy. So it's not uncommon for us, for instance, to use 5-HT3 blockers um, uh, like ondansetron for for chemotherapy-induced nausea. We found that those drugs um, may not work quite to the same degree as we've seen with some other antihistamines, um, even some of the more simpler class of antihistamines. But I would say that those are the primary uh, big three that we have to deal with. And then, of course, because PARP inhibitors can also have an impact on the bone marrow, we do see some cases where um, patients develop anemia, thrombocytopenia, even in some cases, uh, neutropenia. So um, most of the prescribing guidelines are to to treat these patients as you would with chemotherapy um, and monitor the the blood counts. But um, uh, I think one of the other kind of biochemical alterations that we see that are kind of interesting. So uh, we do see as a class that um, serum creatinine can rise. And we think that this is probably a a direct effect on the creatinine transporters as opposed to real kidney injury. And so I think that um, in relation to the question, the, the, the side effect profile that I think that patients really find most troubling is this kind of low grade uh, GI toxicity. And so we're trying to figure out ways for patients to to be able to stay on drug for the longest period of time, uh, as long as they seem to be gaining benefit from it. And as a follow-up to that, then what should be the duration of treatment in a patient who starts on a PARP inhibitor? So uh, that's a good question. I think that um, um, we, uh, you know, general the general rules are that you treat we would treat somebody for um, who has disease until we show signs that there's either nothing there, so a complete response. Um, or they develop uh, progression, or they develop some type of toxicity that um, can't be mitigated. And so even in that setting, even if they're responding, we would have to stop treatment. 
In the maintenance setting, uh, where we essentially have a complete responders and we're just using this for treatment, um, in the recurrence patient, in the recurrent patient, um, uh, you really, as long as you don't reach a toxicity endpoint, we have been essentially treating patients to uh, to that uh, uh, to those uh, kind of same three endpoints. I think the question where it becomes a little more problematic is in the frontline setting, where we're using it as maybe as a primary maintenance. And in, in those uh, specific uh, trials, we have set some upper limits. And, and I guess it would make sense because in a patient who has had uh, primary chemotherapy and is considering a maintenance strategy there, some of those patients essentially have been cured with their frontline treatment. So what they're taking in maintenance is is essentially unnecessary, I guess, if you want to look at it from that standpoint. And we don't know how to pick those patients out. So I think we have felt a little stronger about having an upper limit in that kind of situation. Um, and then, of course, there's always the long-term risk with drug exposure for those patients who may live for a long time. And particularly on the question of uh, maintenance uh, therapy, what is your recommendation for follow-up and surveillance of these patients? You mean while they're on treatment? While they're on treatment, and uh, are you routinely obtaining CT scan imaging, PET scan imaging? Do you follow these patients with just a CA125 as you routinely otherwise? Yeah, I tend to uh, follow them with CA125. Um, I don't do a, a PET scanning as a way of, um, of monitoring treatment um, in general. Um, and mainly that has to do with uh, kind of adherence to resist gu guidelines. So patients that I know that have measurable, some type of measurable lesion that I'm following, I tend to use uh, radiographic imaging that I can use as um, uh, with some accuracy in terms of the size of the lesion. And PET scanning is a little more difficult for that kind of, um, uh, that kind of analysis. Um, but I do think that... Um, as with all patients who go into long-term maintenance, I think there has to be a risk-benefit discussion about whether or not uh, persistent imaging in the face of, for instance, stable CA125 values is, a, is really bringing much to the clinical decision-making. Um, and so I tend to stop you know, doing them so frequently. If they're, of course, if they're on clinical trial, we'll follow that. But off a of trial, um, I tend to follow the CA125 and the symptoms. And your thoughts on the use of PARP inhibitors in combination with chemotherapy? Uh, either in the recurrent setting or even perhaps in the upfront setting? Yeah, so the, um, uh, what, our experience with being able to combine PARP inhibitors with uh, full-dose chemotherapy has been very problematic. Um, as you can imagine, the, since the mechanism of action may have some overlap with chemotherapy, the, the trials that were initially done, uh, for instance, with, um, uh, uh, in um, uh, uh, in combination with paclitaxel carboplatinum with elaparib in the recurrent setting, we found that it was uh, difficult to continue at, at max doses for both of the, uh, for carboplatinum and for the elaparib. So we had to do some significant dose modifications. Um, we do have a, a frontline trial uh, ongoing now called GOG 3005, which is um, combining voliparib, which is another PARP inhibitor, with um, Pacotaxel carboplatinum in the frontline setting. And even during that trial, we have used reduced doses of the voliparib while they're getting the chemotherapy. And the, the major reason for this is that we do see some myelosuppression. Um, and to be fair, I, I don't know that we have documented that combining it with chemotherapy actually adds much to the equation. So um, I think our our interests are really about how we might be able to optimize using other biologics or other targeted agents with the PARPs uh, where there wouldn't be this overlap in the, in the toxicity profile. And as a follow-up to that, how do you see the PARP inhibitors evolving over the next six months or year mm -hmm. uh, in the management of patients with ovarian cancer? 
So I think the uh, the uh, the I think in the short term, what we're going to see is uh, a build out of the portfolio for single agent use. So right now that includes frontline maintenance, um, treatment indications in the recurrent setting, and then uh, we'll fill out the maintenance setting in the recurrent situation uh, as uh, as single agents. And I think that what we'll start in the next year very rapidly will be patients that have been exposed to PARP and whether or not we should have the opportunity to reuse it. And I think it brings up a really interesting uh, set of, of clinical and scientific questions, because if you can imagine a patient, for instance, that goes on a maintenance PARP, doesn't progress on it, but stops because they've finished their course, are those patients now still sensitive to PARP? Uh, on the other hand, a patient who is on a PARP inhibitor who progresses on a PARP, we think that the mechanisms that drive that resistance are probably going to be persistent in the tumor, and so retreatment with a PARP may not have the same outcome. And so there's at least one trial that's looking at a kind of PARP after PARP, if you will, um, sequence to see if there's um, that opportunity. But I think that um, that's going to be pretty well defined. So what we're going to have is a, is a crop of uh, patients that have had prior exposure to PARP and trying to figure out how we might be able to still leverage this kind of unique mechanism of action that um, uh, that might actually address these adaptive changes in the tumor. Um, and so we've got some very interesting ideas, you know, looking at it in combined combination with antiangiogenesis drugs, or looking at it in combination with immune checkpoint inhibitors, or looking at it in combination with other DNA um, uh, uh, response elements like uh, ATM inhibitors, or ATR inhibitors, checkpoint, I mean, uh, CDK inhibitors. So there's some some really interesting new ideas, and of course, we're doing a lot of that. Um, many of those types of concepts uh, under investigation here. Well, Rob, I want to thank you for this very informative uh, session. Any uh, closing remarks you would like to make? Uh, well, no, thank you so much for having me. I think this is an exciting field, and um, really um, hoping to uh, engage with uh, this audience and, uh, and the journal in the future. Thank you very much.